evening to the book of Ephesians. We will read Ephesians chapter 4, the first 16 verses, and the text for this evening's sermon will be the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. And one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We read God's word to that point tonight. The text for this evening's sermon is the first six verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all.
my own congregation, I recently finished preaching through the book of Ephesians. And this passage then was obviously a part of that series. And the reason you are hearing it tonight is because this was the sermon I preached this afternoon in Hull, where their elders chose as their family visitation text the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, and because no minister had preached on this passage with a view to trying to help them, decided to preach on this text for them. Now, regardless of whether this sermon is a part of a series, or whether it's in connection with the family visitation, it's important for every church regardless of where we are at, what we are going through, because it includes a call to keep the unity. And the importance of that calling comes out when we examine where these six verses fall in the broad context of the book of Ephesians. For you see, the book of Ephesians very neatly divides into two halves. The first three chapters are what we might call the doctrinal section that emphasize the blessedness of the church of Jesus Christ. That as those who belong to the church of Christ, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, elaborates on that point for three chapters. But then having completed the doctrinal section, in chapter 4, verse 1, there is a transition to what we might call the more practical section, in which application is especially on the foreground in these chapters, so that the Apostle Paul is taking many of the truths that he established in the first three chapters, and now bringing them to bear upon the lives of the people and the congregation at Ephesus. And understanding that broad context helps us to understand the importance of this passage. Because when the Apostle Paul begins to take those truths that he established in the first three chapters and apply them now, The very first one has to do with keeping the unity. And that's not by accident. It's not that the Apostle Paul just picked one out of a dozen different applications and decided, let's start with this one. But by inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul was deliberate, intentional, in starting here, Church of Jesus Christ, when it comes to living in harmony with the truths that I've just explained to you, let this be a matter of first priority that you endeavor to keep the unity. And that's the word of God that comes to us this night in this passage. We use as our theme the language of verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity. First, we will look at the unity that we have, and there we will explain especially verses 4 through 6. And then we'll look at the exhortation to keep that unity, drawing primarily from verses 2 and 3. And then finally, the motivation to keep it, 
looking especially at verse 1. Endeavoring to keep the unity, the unity that we have, the exhortation to keep it, and the motivation to keep it. The main word of God found in this passage is that exhortation, endeavor to keep the unity. But before we can get to the exhortation, we first need to look at the foundation upon which that exhortation is built, namely the truth that as God's people, as those who are members of the church of Jesus Christ, we have unity. We have been made one by the work of our triune God. And that's a part of our confession as a church. This evening, we confessed our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed, and a part of our confession is that we believe an holy Catholic church. And that little word, an, is significant. It's telling us there's, there's only one church. And if that does not convince you that that is a part of our confession, well, the Belgian Confession makes that more explicit. For a part of Belgian Confession, Article 27 is this. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Ghost. There is one church of Jesus Christ. That's one of the attributes, one of the characteristics of the church. But now when we say that, we need to make clear that the oneness, the unity of the church, that is an attribute of what we call the church invisible. For you see, on the basis of God's word in Reformed theology, we make a distinction between the church invisible and the church visible. The church invisible is the entire elect body of Jesus Christ gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue from the beginning of the world to the end of the world so that to be one of God's elect is to be a member of the invisible church. And we speak of it as the invisible church because this is not something we can see with our physical eyes. At the same time, we can speak of the church visible, the church we can see with our eyes. Calvary Protestant Reformed Church is a visible church. A church that anyone can see when they walk in here for worship on the Sabbath day and see a body of believers gathering together for worship under the oversight of office bearers. This is a specific people group of people that has come together at a specific time in history at a specific location in this world. It's a visible church. That's the distinction. And now to tie this back to what we were just saying, we believe there is one church of Jesus Christ, that there's a fundamental unity to the church. And the point is, we are saying that about the church invisible, about that elect body of Jesus Christ. And her unity is a spiritual unity. Not, a, not an organizational unity, not an institutional unity. And we say that over against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, which likewise would say there's but one church. But for them, the one church, the unity of the church is, well, we're all under the Pope. We're all members of the, the Roman Catholic Church with a specific structure and the specific 
rituals that we have. That's not the unity of the church. But the unity of the church is spiritual in nature. And now in all of this, we are simply affirming what the Bible itself teaches us. And perhaps no book more clearly teaches us about the unity of the church than the book of Ephesians. That's a a theme that runs throughout the book. It's taught, for example, in chapter 2, the first several verses, but especially verse 14, for example. Ephesians 2, verse 14, in the context of talking about Jews and Gentiles, says this, for he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both, that is, both Jews and Gentiles, one. Both Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ Jesus, so that there's a, a unity within the church. That also comes out in the passage that we're considering. In verse 3, which we'll talk about more in the second point, we read, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now the fact that this exhortation that we're going to talk about is endeavor to keep the unity, well, that implies that it already exists. The calling that we'll talk about in the second point is not establish this unity. It's not get this started, but keep it. Keep the unity that's already there. We, we have a oneness as God's people. And that comes out especially in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. On all of the pages of Scripture, there is perhaps no clearer statement of the unity of the church than what we have in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There we read, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And what we can all immediately recognize is this repeated use of the word one. We have one this and one that and one this. And the point is, we all share this in common. Every one of us can look at these things and says, we all have this one thing together. So that as a church, we are one. And it's worth taking the time this evening to go through each of the seven things that are mentioned in verses 4 through 6, about which we can all say we are one in that respect. First, we are members of one body. Verse 4, there is one body. And the body here is the body of Jesus Christ. He is our head, and we are members of his body. And because we are united to our head, we are therefore united to one another. And that's our unity. A unity that embraces the diversity of the members. Because the reality is that as we sit here, there, there's a clear diversity. We're not a bunch of cl- clones of each other. But each one of us has a different personality, different gifts, different abilities. So that there are some who are, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 12, 
eyes or ears. There are others who are hands or feet in the body of Christ. Each one of us has a a different place. But yet we're all united together as one body. That's our unity. Second, our unity is that there is one spirit. Verse 4 says there is one body and one spirit. The spirit here being the spirit of Christ himself. The spirit given to Christ without measure. And the spirit that Christ now sends into the hearts and lives of his own. And we're all given the same spirit. We're all, we all have the same Lord and giver of life within us, giving us the life of Christ. And though, again, the, the Spirit gives a diversity of gifts, that's what verses 7 and following go on to teach. Nevertheless, all those gifts are to be pressed, toward, pressed into the same goal of glorifying our God and serving the body so that, having been given this one Spirit, there is a, a unity there that we have. Third, we have one hope. Verse 4 continues, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, in one hope of your calling. And the hope here is the hope of an, an inheritance. And we say that in light of that same language being used earlier in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 18, for example, Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians. We read him praying that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. And now he elaborates on that to let us know what he means and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So that the hope here is our hope of an inheritance. The inheritance that Christ has earned for us. Life with our God in the new heavens and in the new earth. The fact that we all share that hope unifies us. Because it means we're all headed to the same place. We all have the same end destination that we can look forward to as God's people. And that unifies us. But what is more, it unifies us even now already because as we walk down life's pathway, we can lock our spiritual arms together. We can stand shoulder to shoulder as pilgrims and strangers who are all marching towards that destination. So that having one hope brings us together. It's a unifying factor. That in the third place. Fourth, our unity is that we have one Lord. And that brings us now into verse 5. Verse 5 begins with that very statement. One Lord. And the Lord here is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Lord in the sense that He is our Redeemer. And that He took those of us who were enslaved to sin under the bondage of Satan himself. And He redeemed us. He set us free. He liberated us. And He did that in the same way for each one of us. What a costly thing this was. It was not with gold or silver that he redeemed us but with his own precious blood so that as his people we have the blood of Christ applied to us and that that unites us, that makes us one in our Lord but what is more we also therefore have one ruler 
That's the other idea of Christ being our Lord. He's our Redeemer and He's our Ruler. He sits at God's right hand, ruling over all. And we now all seek to serve Him. We are all citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of our God. And as citizens, we then bow the knee to this one Lord. Fifth, our unity is found in the fact that we have one faith. Verse 5, one Lord and then one faith. Now interestingly here, faith is not referring so much to the content of our faith, what we believe. And I say that's interesting because that is a large part of our unity. That as God's people, we believe and confess the same truths as they are summarized in our Reformed confessions. And there are many other scripture passages that emphasize that aspect of our unity, our unity in the faith that is the content of what we believe. But the idea here in verse 5 is really that we all trust in the same atoning blood of Jesus Christ. So that our oneness is that there's one object of our faith. We all look to Jesus Christ. So that as God's people, our spiritual eyes are all directed at the same person. And that that unites us, that brings us together. And what is more, we are one in the sixth place because there's one baptism. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We've all been washed in the, the blood of Jesus Christ. We've all been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so that His name is now upon us. And that unites us. Because a part of the symbolism of baptism is that we have now been separated from the wicked world. We've been brought into the church. Not that baptism itself affects that, but it's a symbol of that. It's a symbol that we are a part of God's covenant, of the covenant community. That we've been knit together as his set-apart people. We are one in that respect too. So as God's people, there's a, a fundamental unity that we have. Because we have one, there's one body. There's one spirit. One hope. One faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and seventh and finally, we have one God and Father. And that's verse 6. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We've all been adopted into the same family so that we can speak up to this God as our Father so that Christ is now our elder brother. And because that's true, The rest of verse 6 now applies to us. The rest of verse 6 is not speaking of all mankind, but as God's adopted children, it can be said of us that he is above all and through all and in you all. That is, the Father is above all. He's our, our heavenly Father who governs all things, controls all things. He is through all and that he, he blesses us in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, and he is in all and that he is sent His Spirit to live and to dwell within our hearts. And now you take these seven things and you put them all together and they emphasize as clearly as any other passage. The church is one. 
Because this is a statement of fact. There are some who have interpreted verses 4 through 6 as, as, an import, as an imperative, as a calling. Let it be that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But that's not the point. Our King James is correct. And it says this is true. There is, in fact, one body, one spirit, one hope, and what follows. And that's true because of the work of our triune God. Because this is indeed His work. As we went through those seven things, did you notice that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned? Spirit, Lord, that is the Son, and then Father. All three are mentioned because this is the work of our triune God. The the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, starts with the Spirit because he's the one who comes to live and to dwell within our hearts and thus unites us to Christ and thus unites us to one another. He's the one who affects this unity. And then having started with the Spirit, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, moves to the Son because he's the one who purchased this unity. This is one of the saving benefits for which Christ himself died to make us all one in him. And then we move from the Spirit to the Son to the Father because the Father is the source of all this. He's the one who sent the Son into this world to accomplish this. And he's the one who gives the Spirit to the Son whom the Son then sends to us. It's the triune God who establishes this unity. And what a gift this is. We need to view it that way. As a gift from God that as a diverse group of people, as the elect body of Christ, found from every nation, tribe, and tongue, from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, it's a tremendous gift that we are all one. That as his people, we can all say together, we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. And because it is a gift, we're to view it as most precious. This is a treasure, something valuable that's been given to the church. And that must be our perspective. Because it's only when we view it that way that we will ever begin to endeavor to keep this unity. Because that is the exhortation that comes to us tonight as a church. The exhortation is to keep this unity as we read in verse 3. Verse 3 sets before us the exhortation itself and we'll start there. Before going back to verse 2, which gives us the manner in which we are to do this. We start with the exhortation itself. Endeavor, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now when this calling comes to us, in light of everything that we've already said, it should be clear 
that this calling is not implying that the unity of the church now depends upon us as God's people and how well we do in endeavoring to keep it. And that should be clear because as we've already said, we have this unity. This unity is something that God himself has established. And the reality is because God himself has made us one, there's nothing in all the world that can break apart, that can disrupt that fundamental unity. Not even the devil himself can rip apart the elect body of Christ as it's been united to Jesus Christ. And therefore, the point in verse 3, when we come to this exhortation, is not, well, the triune God is the one who establishes this unity. He, He puts it in place, but now it's on you, church, to keep it intact. That's not the point. But the point is, because God has done this work, we are now to live in harmony with that. The point of the Spirit through Paul is to say, you are one, And now live like it, act like it. And we're to do that in two specific respects. And to help remember them, we'll use two words that both start with the letter M. What does it mean for us to keep this unity? First, it means manifest it. Express it. Show it. And do that in the visible church. For you see, as we said, this unity that we were describing in the first point applies really to the church invisible, that elect body of Jesus Christ. But now when the calling comes to us, keep that unity. A part of the calling is then manifest it in the visible church. Do so by coming together as a body of believers to establish local congregations that are visible manifestations of that elect body of Christ. Manifest this unity by living together in peace and in harmony with each other. Manifest it still further by federating with other like-minded churches, joining yourself to a denomination of churches. Manifest the unity in seeking to Manifest it worldwide by establishing sister church relationships with others who agree to the same truths of the Reformed faith. The church is one. And now let that be seen. Let that be on display in the visible church. That, first of all, is the specific way in which we are to keep the unity, manifest the unity. But then second, along with that, comes the calling then to maintain that visible manifestation of it. Maintain the unity. And now we're not saying that about the the fundamental unity that we have, that we described in the first point, but about the visible manifestation of it. Nothing can break apart the unity that we have as those who are united to Jesus Christ, but when it comes to the visible manifestation of it? Well, that can be marred. That can be defaced. 
times it's hid. And certainly as Protestant Reformed churches, we are well aware of that. In light of the recent struggles that we have gone through, the unity of the church was under severe attack. And knowing how fragile it is, the calling then comes to us. Maintain it. Guard it. Keep it. Preserve it. Protect it. And do your utmost in this. That is endeavor to keep the unity. Because that's the specific language of the text. Verse 3 does not simply begin with the calling, keep the unity. But before we get to the word keep, there's another word put out in front of that, namely, endeavor to keep the unity. That is, Make every effort to keep the unity. Exert yourself to keep the unity. Strive to keep the unity. Take pains to keep the unity. That's simply what that word endeavor means in the original. And this is to be our ongoing activity because the the verb in the original is what is put in what's called the present tense, indicating this is ongoing, continual action that's being called for here. So that this is not a a one-time thing, this is not a part-time thing, but this is to be an all-the-time thing. At all times, as God's people, we are to strive to keep this unity. And note well, that's God's own word to us. That needs to be said because there are some who upon hearing such a word would say, well, you're making this all about man. This is man-centered preaching, after all, because you're, you're calling for the child of God to strive, to exert himself, to put some effort into something. And maybe there's a part of us that is leery of that language, that wants to shy away from a word like endeavor. But this is the language of Scripture. The Apostle Paul was led by the spirit of inspiration to pick this specific word and to put it at the beginning of verse 3. So that this is God's own word to the church of Jesus Christ. Endeavor to keep, that is to manifest and to maintain the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. So how are we to do that? Well, that's where verse 2 comes in especially. Verse 3 is the exhortation itself, and now the specific manner in which we are to do that comes out in verse 2. Verse 2 we read, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That's how we keep the unity. First of all, with all lowliness. Lowliness being a humble disposition that comes from a sense of 
our littleness as God's creatures, and worse still, our sinfulness. And you understand this humility is so crucially important in the church and the unity of the church because it's only when there is this humility that we will ever put others before ourselves. It's only when there's this lowliness that we will live according to the word of God in Philippians 2 verse 3. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And this loneliness comes from Christ. From the one who said, I am meek and lowly. This loneliness comes from the one who, being in the form of God, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Next, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, mentions meekness with all lowliness and meekness. Meekness here is gentleness. It's the virtue of not being overly impressed with one's sense of self-importance. And that's what makes us gentle in our interactions with each other. That's what keeps us from insisting upon my right and my way. So that if we want a biblical example of someone who had this meekness, this gentleness, we can look at Abraham and his interactions with his nephew Lot when there was a dispute over which person's cattle was going to get a graze here. Lot, or excuse me, Abraham was the one who was willing to say, Lot, you pick. Even though the promise had come to Abraham, even though he was the elder, he was the uncle, he did, not, he did not insist upon his right. He said, Lot, you pick, you choose, and I'll go the other way. That's meekness. And we have that meekness when we recognize that the reality is nothing that I have is mine on account of my own right. Everything that I have has been given to me, whether I'm talking about something physical or whether I'm talking about something spiritual. It's all given to me on behalf of Jesus Christ. And it's when we recognize that that we can then have this meekness, this gentleness. Next, the Apostle Paul mentions long-suffering with all lowliness and meekness with Long-suffering. Long-suffering here is patience. It's the, the slowness to anger. It's what keeps us from retaliating when others provoke us. And oh, how that's needed in the church. Because while we all have one Lord, there's something else we all share in common. And that's our sinful natures. Every one of us deriving our sinful nature from our first father, Adam, that's been passed down to everyone of his posterity so that everyone in this room is a sinner. And that means in the church of Jesus Christ, we are going to be sinned against. It ought not surprise us. Really, we need to expect it. And if anything, we should be surprised it doesn't happen more often. And that's where long-suffering comes in. 
so that though others sin against me, I'm slow to anger. I don't need to retaliate. I don't need to try to get revenge. And I don't need to because of look at how God, how long-suffering God is with me. All the times I've sinned against him and how patient he is, how slow to anger he is in his dealings with me and therefore out of gratitude for that, out of love for him, I'm to show that same long-suffering to others. And then finally there's forbearance. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. We are to endure. We are to bear patiently with the weaknesses of others and the sinfulness of others. Even when that person has that quirk about them. That personality that sort of rubs me the wrong way. And the reality is that person's probably never going to change that perspective. Well, that's where forbearance comes in. The willingness to bear patiently with that. And to do so from a heart of love. Because in verse we read forbearing one another in love so that the point of forbearing is not well this person has offended me or done something to me that I don't like and now I'm going to avoid an external display of my bitterness but I'm going to hold on to my resentment in my heart I'm going to bear a grudge even though I'm going to put on a show that I get along with this person that's not forbearing in love But forbearing in love is having a proper attitude of the heart. And we're to forbear in that way because of God's love for us. And that he set his love upon us. And knowing his great love for us and sending his son to die for us, we are then to love one another in that way. That's how we are to keep the unity. It's quite striking when you stop to think about it. That when this passage comes to us and sets forth the manner in which we are to keep the unity, the first two things, the lowliness and the meekness, have to really do with my attitude about myself. And having a humble disposition and a willingness to put others in front of myself so that what it's combating is our sinful pride and our tendency to be so self-centered. And that's so important because it's that pride, it's that self-centeredness that runs contrary to keeping the unity. It's when I insist it's my way or the highway. When it's all about me and everybody should be serving me. That's what hinders unity. That's what disrupts the unity of the church. At least the manifestation of it. And the same applies to the second pair. The the being long-suffering and the the forbearing one another in love. That's directed at our sinful tendency to respond in the wrong way when others sin against us. 
our natural, our default is response is to get angry. Someone did something that I don't like and now I'm going to let them have it and I'm going to let them know it. Unless this word of God comes to us and says, not that way. Because that anger, that, that mentality that I'm going to retaliate, that's, that's damaging, that's ruinous to the unity of the church. Instead, we are to be long-suffering. Instead, we are to be forbearing. That's how we keep the unity. So how are we doing with this? Is this you? Is it me? Are we endeavoring to keep the unity in Calvary Protestant Reformed Church? Congregation, we have good reason to do so. And our motivation is gratitude for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And that motivation comes out when we go back to verse 1. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And what's notable are those words, therefore, I beseech you. For those couple of words establish the connection between the first three chapters of the book and chapters 4 through 6 that follow. And the link is not just, well, these all fit together as one epistle of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. But the link is, in light of all of the blessings set forth in the first three chapters, now out of gratitude for that, out of thankfulness for that, here comes the calling. Here comes the exhortation so that this exhortation the motivation for it is gratitude for everything that's already been set forth in the first three chapters. And we do indeed have much to be thankful for. As a congregation, you have not heard the first three chapters explained as part of a series. In light of that, perhaps it's worth going home tonight and reading those three chapters all together to see how they emphasize the blessedness of the church, that is, the glorious truth that for Christ's sake, God now lavishes the riches of salvation upon his church so that from a spiritual point of view, we are billionaires, congregation. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we've seen one of those blessings tonight. This unity that's not up to us to establish, but that's a gift from God. That's something that Christ earned for us. It's a blessing given to the church. And that's just one particular 
And there are many others that are set forth in the first three chapters. And what makes them all so beautiful is that standing behind every one of them is the saving work of Jesus Christ. That is, standing behind them is the work of Jesus Christ to endeavor. In the work that was set before him. Take that word that we might be tempted to shy away from tonight, endeavor, and apply it first to him. Jesus Christ is the one who exerted himself, who made every effort who took pains to finish the work that the Father gave him to do. Christ is the one who endeavored his entire earthly life in that work of keeping the law, of fulfilling all righteousness so that there can be an obedience that can be given to us as the ground, as the basis for our righteousness with God so that God can declare to us, you're justified. And Christ was the one who endeavored in all of his suffering, in all that came upon him. He's the one who took pains at the cross as God himself poured out his wrath upon him for our sins. You take that word endeavor and you start with Christ. And then hear him say to us, Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You see, it's only when we start with the endeavoring of Jesus Christ that we can ever understand in a proper sense how God's word can come to us and say, endeavor in this or that aspect of the Christian life. Because it's only when we start with Christ that we then see that my endeavoring is not what makes me right with God. It's not how I earn his favor. It's not how I am the one who maintains ultimately the the unity of the church. But my endeavoring is really an expression of gratitude for his endeavoring, his work on my behalf. And what is more, my endeavoring has its strength, its power in Christ himself. And that he's the one who gives me his own spirit. Who works in me, both the willing and the doing. So that we look to Christ for the motivation for the strength. And all of that is really what it means to walk worthy of our calling. It's the one part of the passage that we have yet to touch on. Part of verse 1 I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation, and the idea really is there, the calling, wherewith ye are called. 
This verse speaks of our walk. Our walk is our conduct. It's the the way we live our life. It's our behavior. And it connects that to our calling. The calling being here our saving, efficacious call whereby Christ has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And now the Spirit connects those two and says, walk worthy of your calling. That is, as those who have been so called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, unto all the blessings of salvation, let your walk your conduct, your behavior as a Christian, be in harmony with that. And this is not the only place in Scripture that presents the Christian life in this way. This is Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation, that is your walk of life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. This is Colossians 1, verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What all these passages have in common is that they start with our salvation. And the wondrous blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And then come to us and call us to live out of gratitude out of thankfulness for those blessings. Walk worthy of your calling and do so in this particular way. Endeavor to keep the unity that the triune God has so graciously given to you. May God grant us his grace to do that. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for the tremendous blessings of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that thou wilt fill our hearts with gratitude for all that Christ has accomplished for us and gives to us by his spirit and may that gratitude spill over into a life of thankful obedience work that in us by thy spirit and apply this word unto our hearts and use it for the good of this congregation hear this prayer for Christ's sake amen